Welcome back. This week on the podcast, I talk with Zach Scow. Zach has an incredible story and mission. He is the co-founder of Marley's Mutt's Dog Rescue and their initiative program of Positive Change Program. And Zach has a very relatable story with dogs um, to probably a lot of us. And dogs, in his words, rescued him um, from the depths of addiction when he was at his lowest, his dogs were there for him, and he says he would not be alive today without his dogs. And he took that experience to start Marley's Mutt's Dog Rescue in 2009, and since then, that has been his mission. Um, he started the Positive Change Program, which pairs dogs on death row with incarcerated people to make a change that way as well and throughout his story and throughout this conversation he is open he is honest he is vulnerable and really the work he is doing is incredible and i wish there were more programs like marley's mutts out there um hopefully there will be um and hopefully through this podcast and through this episode uh, we can raise more awareness and it might light a fire in one of you to start a dog rescue um another thing that we talk a lot about on the show is addiction and Zach was in addiction at one point in his life and like many of us we might have abused alcohol um, throughout our life or we still do to this day and the mission at Rebel Rabbit Seltzer is to find a healthier and a better way to socialize and drink and it doesn't have to be you know, if you're in a bender or you're doing a crazy weekend, it can be when you just get home from work or you just want to relax a little bit. Rebel Rabbit Seltzers could be the perfect alternative to alcohol for you. They are infused with Delta 9 THC and they have a couple different levels. They have a mild hair and they have a wild hair. So whichever level might be best for you, they have an option for you. Their link is in the show notes. Um, their website is drinkrebelrabbit.com. If you use promo code LIFE20, you'll get 20% off your order. But like I said, it doesn't have to be for somebody that you know is has to give up alcohol or it could just be in a social scene, um, whatever you might use it for. I think it could be perfect um, alternative to alcohol for you. You'll wake up without a hangover. You'll be able to be more productive in the days following. Your anxiety won't be high. So try Rebel Rabbit Seltzers. They are getting retailers all over the country, but you can order directly from their website at the link in the show notes. So just click that link. And then my other sponsor um, of the show is Spinks Convenience Stores and what I love about Spinks is their history and their story and how charitable they are um, to their communities they are in. They have given millions of dollars to help the communities they are in. So if you go, if you pass by Spinks or if you need to get a snack on your way to work, um, grab a drink or get some gas, get a car wash, whatever you need, support Spinks because um, it's not what you see on the outside all the time. It's what they do behind the scenes is what um, makes me so honored to have them as a sponsor of the show um, and all the links for marley's mutts are also in the show so if you want to adopt a dog i have that link directly in the show notes i have zach's instagram in the show notes as well and you can find all the links um, to all the programs he is running and without further ado here's my conversation with zach scow 
Zach, man, I am uh, so pumped to have you on. And uh, first off, brother, how's your day going? Oh, my day is terrific. I uh, just got back from Los Angeles. I run in one of our boys' juvenile programs down there in Malibu. It's called Camp Kilpatrick, nestled in the Malibu Hills. Uh, we have a bunch of juvenile um, offender students who are taking care of our rescue dogs and training. So uh, I was there yesterday. We had to drop off some supplies. So now I'm back up at home, back up in the Tatchby Mountains, and uh, ready to get into it, man. Very cool. And, uh, dude, you told me you, you hit 15 years sober this year. Yeah, I'll be 15 in October, man. Oh, almost there, dude. Let's go. I mean, it, it is, uh, it doesn't even sound right coming out of my mouth. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I was a guy who couldn't get 15 minutes of sobriety. Mm -hmm. I mean, never even close to 15 days. 15 hours would have been hard. You know, I was a daily 24 hour day drinker, you know, and in many cases, 24 hour a day user, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so I was, uh, the idea of having 15, especially my relationship with alcohol, like the idea of having 15 years without something that completely controlled every facet, second variable of my life. You know, it's a trip to look back on that. It really is. It is wild, man. Like when you reflect on, like I know when I reflect on my using days, it's, it's just crazy to think about. When, uh, take me back to Zach at, I don't know, 18 years old. Like, what was your mentality? What were you getting into? So at 18 years old, I was in basically in the process of getting kicked out of San Diego State University. Um, I had been drinking every day since I was about 16, 17. And that progressed when I went to college, that progressed to religiously every night and almost always binge drinking, you know, got into selling weed down there, you know, using marijuana like religiously habitually just as part of like the culture you know i'm a skateboarder and a surfer and i'm from hermosa beach california so it's very much ingrained in the culture and so i think then i i if you would have asked me i probably would have said i i would have loved to have been a fighter pilot or a teacher you know history teacher or fighter pilot two very <laughs> radical completely but, uh, different <laughs> yeah my, my dad is a aeronautical engineer and a pilot and all of my dad's my godfathers, all my dad's best friends are fighter pilots. So I grew up with all of those guys in my circle and, and spending time in all of their offices at my dad's business and at his company. And uh, so they were always my heroes and they were all test pilots. So they had an extra special, you know, something to them. They were such risk takers and such impressive guys. Most of them had deep military histories as well from Korea and Vietnam. But yeah, at 18, 19 years old, I think my mentality was generally scared I wouldn't have come across that way. You wouldn't have thought that talking to me. I mean, mm -hmm. very affable, very gregarious. Um, but I was definitely covering up and hiding a lot of just general anxiety with the world. You know, I had to drink to go to class. Um, I started drinking to go to class when I was 19. You know, I got kicked out of school, started doing the kind of junior college, you know, circuit, just doing geographics to try to cure my alcoholism and some of my my social uncomfortableness, you know, and, and mm -hmm. trying to associate with different people, change this variable, that variable, but obviously the, the underlying cause, root cause of all of my isms and my, my just general disease was, was alcoholism. And I just couldn't, uh, you know, I was also very uncomfortable went through some childhood sexual trauma that made me very uncomfortable with women in an intimate setting. You know, I would be, I was very driven to be, with girls i had all those drives and all of that 
that energy and that, mm-hmm. that, that chemistry. And then um, having gone through a lot of the years of things that I did as a child, it, it, um, I, I couldn't help but associate intimacy with, with deep fear of, of flight, of get, get the fuck out of here mm-hmm. as soon as possible. And um, thankfully with, through therapy and through, through other modalities, I've been able to really address that and kind of had a, a rebirth in my thirties, in my mid thirties in terms of my comfortableness with, with intimacy, but that helped me back a lot. You know, alcohol told me that I needed it for everything. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and in a large sense of the, of the word or of the phrase I did, you know, I became completely dependent on it for everything to, to get up in the morning, to go to bed at night, to have conversations, to be with a woman, to study, to learn, to watch TV, anything to anything I had to do, I needed to be socially lubricated in order to do it. Or I had this encroaching low grade panic that would kind of set in and, and take me over. And, um, you know, it was something that I just couldn't get away from. And alcohol was one of those things that, that helped me deal with it. And then of course with acute alcoholism comes, uh, especially when you're dealing with massive amounts of alcohol. I mean, I drank, I drank as much alcohol as I could, you know, it puts you into, it's a sedative, puts you into a low state. So that led me to a lot of upper drugs. So I quickly upgraded to cocaine, then crack, um, started using crack habitually, started selling crack, um, making crack, you know, things that I would have never in a million, even reflecting back on it. Now I think about some of the scenarios I was in some of the scenarios that I created around my regular life. These weren't even fringe interactions. These were like regular you know, fundamental interactions to my existence were, was this really uh, detrimental behavior and just getting caught up in scenarios that were highly dangerous mm-hmm. um, that involved guns and drugs and, and just really things that I look back on now that give me anxiety to even reflect on. I'm like, dude, who, who was that guy? And things that I, you know, I'm a, I'm a per- I got into a lot of fights. I, I never been an aggressive person, never been a person that even enjoyed getting in fights. I think I was just compensating for a lot of things, but one of the things that uh, sobriety gave me is just this this um, commitment to love, this this deep understanding of uh, well, the God of my understanding that is well integrated with the idea of of, of kind of universal love. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really changed my. I mean, I'm a completely different person. I wouldn't be surprised if my molecules have changed since sobriety. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I'm a completely different person in, in terms of my relationships, in terms of my relationship with myself. Um, you know, I, and I struggle just like everybody else. When I get away from from the things I know are good for me in sobriety, I, I struggle and I suffer. And sometimes yeah. that suffer loop, I feel like it, it initiates itself because I have this subconscious commitment to suffering. <laughs> I, mean, I think a lot of us alcoholics have this subconscious commitment to suffering, where it's like maybe if we suffer a little more, maybe we'll 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 be paying for our due, you know, our our, our past um, indiscretions and our past violations and. So all of a sudden we find ourselves and then that leads to feeling sorry, oddly sorry for myself while I'm punishing myself. And uh, it's just it was such a maddening dance that I did for so many years. Uh, and sobriety's really given me a, I don't know, man, a, a clarity. And a, I wouldn't I wouldn't have anything that I have in my life had I not achieved you know sobriety at, at 29 years old. I would have none of the things that I have and I would 100 percent be in, incarcerated or dead. Yeah. I mean, dude, you think about it though. It's uh, obviously there's so many people going through that, and it's uh, very relatable to me. When uh, when did you know you had a problem, or when did you? Start oh, I knew like- I was an alcoholic when I was a kid. I knew, I knew because I had it all around me. I, I had this odd 
pride and so did my friend group a lot of the friends that i ran with there was this certain pride to belligerence and plot pride to just kind of going going full tilt um ra just raging getting mm -hmm. in fights you know just being punk rock and there was this certain um there was this certain thrill of that lifestyle that was just part of what i was you know i just assumed was what i was supposed to be doing um so i knew i knew very early on that i was an alcoholic that i was that i was dependent on these substances um but i had a i deluded myself by having a pride about it you know i thought it, it alcoholism has a mind of its own and one of the ways that it it reproduces and keeps alive in you is is to tell you that um you know that it's what you need and that it's okay and that it's not nearly as as bad as 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 it is and um it, and so i knew very early on that i was different i knew that i drank differently i knew that i was covering things up i had a deep self-awareness of of the struggle that i had internally i just yeah. didn't know i could when you confront culturally the idea or societally the idea of stopping drinking it's it's overwhelming it's completely overwhelming because not only is the idea of not drinking it, it eliminates my identity it, it takes everything away from my identity but and then it also almost immediately ostracizes me from from 99 of the culture and the society i couldn't grapple with that say like, wait you want to take away alcohol which is the only way that i feel comfortable out in the world and the only way that people accept me and the only way that people really interact and, and connect and commune socially what am i going to do i can't what am i going to do i can't survive as a man in my 20s um without ever having alcohol again you know that was just unfathomable it was unthinkable and especially the way my family was you know and, and, and just about every family that i know i mean mm -hmm. i don't know if if this is something that's unique to southern california to a degree but just about everybody i know in terms of friends parents have you know issues with drugs or alcohol in their family and, and with with probably the majority i mean it might be that that kind of accepted drinking four glasses of wine every night you know but you're still throwing back a bottle of wine every night to deal with your problems that's that's uh defined alcoholism <laughs> dude i think it's everywhere i i mean i'm in south carolina and i know you know almost every family i know has somebody close within their family struggling with drugs or alcohol in 2008 you do eventually and you, you kind of recount this as you look yourself in the mirror what what's going on in the days leading up to that and then what was that breakthrough of like all right like i'm gonna make a change or yeah the um so in 2008 at the time you're talking about i was in full-blown liver failure so my liver had completely failed i'd spent five weeks in the hospital I got admitted to the comprehensive transplant program at Cedar sinai I had less than 90 days to live, and my only hope was a liver transplant. So the only thing they were telling me is, if you can survive six months, we will get you transplant eligible. It just you got to make it. If you if you if you don't, you know, and I hadn't been sober six hours, days, forget six months, and I was dying. I mean, I was as, as acutely ill as you can be. When you're in liver failure, everything fails. Your pancreas, your kidneys are going, your gallbladder. You're just inflamed everywhere, and and your liver isn't processing the bile, the blood. So you're getting ammonia buildup on your brain. You're getting fluid buildup in your abdomen, which you have to get drained through paracentesis. I mean, they're pulling liters of blood and bile out of your abdominal cavity. It's a, it's a, and you you kind of vacillate between coherence and absolute incoherence. You know, so I was just scared, man. I was just scared. My scared meter was pegged completely like i was so terrified of every second of every day and i was in so much pain trying to emotionally cope with being sober for the first time in my life at 28 all that shit's catching up to me all that stuff that was behind me that i didn't know how to cope with 
obviously mm-hmm. was catching up with me and was sitting in my mind and on my heart and it was killing me. And then I was in so much pain physically and existentially, you know, I was just a burden. I, I was of no value to anyone. And I was a huge burden to my family to, I thought I was a burden to my dogs, you know, and, and, um, I got, I got addicted to Dilaudid and morphine in the hospital, uh, because back then it was based on a pain metric. They just gave you, it was a, this smiley face, uh, chart on the wall. And if you're smiling, you're all right. If it's straight, you know, you're a little bit of pain, frowny, you're somewhat painful, frowny crying is your, you're maxed out. So I'm frowny crying the whole five weeks I'm in there, Damn. hit me with as many drugs as I can get hit with. So the first thing I had to do was go through opiate withdrawal for mm-hmm. two days, you know, and it was awful. I, I conned my dad into taking me to the hospital for shots. I mean, I was dope sick, it, like something I'd never been before, you know, and I'd already gone through alcohol withdrawal in the hospital. So I, I was just, I've been, a lot of people want to attribute strength and courage and all this shit. I was a scared shitless little kid. There was zero strength, zero courage. I barely had the will to survive. And and I, I constantly obsessed about suicide. And that was kind of the only mm-hmm. thing I could put my mind into that felt like I was doing something because I was helpless. I was completely helpless, not in control of anything, or at least I felt like it, uh, anything around me. But what I did do was stay sober and I got through that and, uh, Right after I got through opiate withdrawal, you know, I I had some clarity and I had some relief. And there was this idea of, all right, man, you know, you are either going to die like this or you're going to try to make some effort to get better. And my dogs were so, they they were all around me while I was going through withdrawal, you know, through a lot of bad audiovisual hallucinations, things that were scaring the shit out of me. Sure. And, and they were with me at all times, my three rescue dogs. These are, And I had started working in rescue before I got sick. So these were dogs that I'd gotten through the Tehachapi Humane Society or Canine Canyon Branch or the, the local animal shelter. And they were my dudes. They were my people. <laughs> and we always had this incredible relationship. And I started to sink in on me, you know, what what was going to happen with them, you know. So I, I started to think about their future. And I started to think about a lot of different things. I watched the sunrise for the first time. I felt like in decades, like where I actually watched it and, and, and appreciated it. And the sun came up over the mountains. It was like 530 in the morning. And um you know, a lot of different emotions came over me, but we basically made a commitment to one another where we were going to give it a shot that, you know, I need you guys to help me with this. And if I can try to live like you guys too, to just be in the moment to be, um, and to also quite honestly, to be the person they saw in me, there was this adoration. There was this like, just love bullets coming out of my dogs at all times. Like they worshiped the ground I walked on. We have such a great, all three of those dogs have passed the, the, one of them passed just recently. He is 20 years old. Wow. I had him since he was old. Uh, he passed last week. And, um, you know, those dogs were just precious to me. And and they they were able to, like, help muster this last, like, attempt mm-hmm. out of me. And it was just as simple as walking, man. It was as simple as, as taking one step at a time in the mountains with my dogs and trying to take in the majesty around me. There's mm-hmm. God everywhere. I had been shut off to God in all ways and proudly shut off to God in all ways. I was a vehement atheist. So to be able to take in my surroundings, to watch the, the sunrise, to start to feel some semblance of, of maybe gratitude or maybe of hope started to settle in and just watching how happy my dogs were on those walks. And I couldn't get very far too. I'm talking like I would go to the bottom of my driveway in the beginning and then we'd just come back up and then I'd rest for a little bit. You know, um, it was a, it was a really it was a really brutal experience 
that that whole rehabilitation physically emotionally existentially all of it i mean i was completely obliterated like i was a sacked village raised to the ground with just no nothing was left of me man nothing was left of me and i got to try to figure out how to live sober how to tolerate myself sober how to talk to people how to drive driving sober for me was very challenging I hadn't driven sober in a long time and I had fucking anxiety that was so <laughs> ridiculous, you know, uh, that made no sense. I had to like learn how to do everything all over again. And I, and luckily my dogs gave me the courage to face a lot of that. I wouldn't have been able to do it solo, man. Cause I had this, uh, this egotistical focus. This is not really narcissism as much as it's just an egocentric idea that everyone is look. Cause I looked so sick. I looked very ill and people knew me. So when I went out in public, I got stared at mm-hmm. and people didn't want to get close to me in meetings because they thought I was going to die. I was very much, I don't want to say ostracized, but I was a little bit of an island, you know, and I wouldn't have had the courage, especially, you know, I had a foundation kind of built on vanity. When you get, when you get further on in your addictions, you're like, I got nothing left, but like being mildly handsome, you know what <laughs> I mean? So, so being this shadow of myself having to return into public, God, it didn't help to have my dogs, man, because I could divert the attention of every conversation to my dogs. The dogs would kind of take over the focal point so we could always bond on that. We, I could always feel comfortable. I could always root myself in that. And fucking it, would that help me to just get out there and start trying, just to start practicing life, you know? And and, and maybe that's one thing people can can take away for those who are close to people who are going through recovery is is we're out there trying to figure out how to do it all over again. We're little babies meandering through life, trying to make sense of it all. And and so try to be conscious of, you know, your, your sober loved ones or your newly sober loved ones are, it's a, it's a real challenge to upgrade mm-hmm. your software to modern times and to try to, 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 to get with this new life with, without, you know, depending on the, the toxic coping mechanisms that you used to have. So try to give, try to give us some grace. Give because, some uh, grace we're, for real. We're, we're a little bit clueless out there sometimes. Rebel Rabbit is on a mission to provide a healthier and smarter way to socialize and drink. Their alcohol-free cannabis-infused seltzers are perfect for anybody just trying to kick back and relax after a hard day at work or on the golf course with your friends or hanging out at a party and you want to wake up and feel better the next day. Their seltzers are perfect for you. They are a great alternative to alcohol as well. Their website is drinkrebelrabbit.com. Use promo code LIFE20. You'll get 20% off your order. That link is in the show notes. But join the mission and start drinking and socializing smarter with Rebel Rabbit Seltzers. How did did your dad help you get on the transplant list? Oh, man, you just want me to cry on video. Yeah. Oh, man. So um it wasn't you know there was a whole community that helped me get on the transplant list so the the way that went down is i was at bakersfield memorial hospital i had been diagnosed with what's called end stage liver disease so that that is the 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 last stage so you either typically die or you get a liver transplant they did not do liver transplants at bakersfield memorial hospital so if i were to have any hope i needed to be transferred to one of the seven hospitals in california that did liver transplant USC, uh, Cedars, UCLA, USF, Scripps, um, there's a handful and you got to get accepted into those programs. And I did not have six months of sobriety. Those are, that's a, that's a minimal boundary condition for entrance into most, uh, into most transplant programs. So, um, I was just dying, 
you know, and, and the doctor had come in at that point and said, um, you know, your son has less than 90 days to live. He needs a liver transplant to survive and, and he's not going to get one. I mean, it was very matter of fact. It was, he is not going to get a liver transplant. You need to probably consider taking him home on hospice care. The insurance was trying to kick us out of the hospital at that point. I'd been there for a very long time. I was just degrading. I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And um, my dad's an engineer, man. So he set off to fix a problem, you know, to address a problem systematically. And, and he wasn't going to take no for an answer. Like, if I think about it, it's probably the most, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced in my life is to witness the pure love of a father and the un, just unparalleled dogged determination that a parent displays when they're trying to save their kid. It is a, it is somewhat of a, like it's a tenacious autopilot. He just flipped a switch mm-hmm. and he didn't get, he got fired up. He didn't get pugnacious. He didn't pick fights with people, but he had a mission to accomplish and he was going to accomplish it. And uh, by the grace of, of whomever, we had a, we had some help through our insurance company, through uh, UC, through um, the insurance company I had at the time. We had a nurse who worked at UCLA who was coaching us through a lot of these application processes and how to understand the system and, and where you were, what your options are and if you had any at all and what are perhaps some tactics so they basically were able to get us an, a meeting with the Comprehensive Transplant uh, Program at Cedar sinai Medical Center, which is where I was born in Beverly Hills. And, you know, at that moment, you know, my dad said, all right, we're doing it. And it was like in the next day. So we had to literally sign out against doctor's orders with the entire, you know, apparatchik saying what you're about to do is, is borderline illegal. You're putting your son at great risk, taking him out of this hospital. Um, and so you had to sign, we had to sign a bunch of documents saying this is against medical advice and speed me to Cedar sinai Medical Center, where um, I had a meeting with Dr. Tram Tran, who was the head of the transplant program, and she admitted me to the comprehensive transplant program. And the first thing she did was take me off almost all of my medication. She said, uh, you know, the opiates that you're ingesting in, in massive amounts are killing you faster. A lot of the medications you're on are killing you. Your your body can't, pro- your, your filters are broken. Your internal filters are broken and they can't process all this stuff that's coming through your body. So we're going to take a risk and take you off almost all. I was on like 13 he- heavy medications. Took me off everything. and and um, But it wasn't just that. In order to get that interview, I had the senior softball team that I used to play baseball up here with. I was always intoxicated too. We had the Humane Society and a bunch of other local animal welfare organizations that stepped up and wrote letters for me. So I had, when I got home from the hospital, I had a stack of letters of testimonials from people That's that uh, it was hard to read, man, because I, I felt so, so poorly of myself mm-hmm. and to read what people said about me. was like, um, it, it, I had such a deep self-hatred for myself. It's like, you don't want to even allow any, any light and any positive feedback about yourself because you got to stick with the narrative that you suck. And um, it was really revelatory, you know, it really, um, really changed. It, it helped send me into sobriety because it changed my, you know, a bit of my opinion about myself. Mm-hmm. And so they admitted me to the program. They basically said, look, kid, if you if you can get this sobriety, you're in. You, you got your transplant. If your numbers still require it, you got your transplant. So just survive six months, go home. We, we are not so sure about this decision to to kick you out of the hospital and send you home this might be the wrong decision but we think the hospital's killing you so we're going to send you home and that's what worked you know i uh, i got worse before i got better but my body started to process all this stuff out of me like all these blisters from my knees below like all my skin boiled over and all these 
these medications kind of poured out of my body. Um, and, and it was really just, uh, yeah, I mean, my dad, and then my dad had to be hand and foot with me when I got home from the hospital, I couldn't use the bathroom. I was soiling the bed regularly. Like he had to help me with all of these things. And I was, you know, somewhat returned to a fetal state. Like I, especially when I first got home, I, I couldn't walk. I couldn't go to the bathroom. It was really challenging. Um, and he just, he never gave up and he never quit. And he was always, you know, as, uh, as determined as he could be. And it was, um, I have to imagine it was the most painful, um, terrible thing he's ever been through in his life. I abused him to a degree that, you know, I'll never fully recover from. Mm -hmm. Like I, I have vivid memories of, I mean, I drank a month after I got out of the hospital, I drank, you know, my dad had been waiting on me hand and foot, getting me to meetings. But one contingency of being part of the transplant program is I had to go to a meeting every day and I had to fact my, so I was on a liver card in order to get my liver transplant in meetings. I had to have the meeting secretary sign it and then I had to fax it to Damn. the Cedar. So I was, I was going to meetings and uh, yeah, man. I don't exactly know where I was going with that, but, no, but you I said think you about drank it. a month out of the hospital. Oh yeah. Sorry. So, so a month after I got out of the hospital, um, I'd been doing quite well. I've been going to meetings. Um, my dad had been taking care of me and he had finally had to tend to some work. He went to had to go to Brazil for like 48 hours and he left. And, um, I just remember thinking like I hadn't slept, you know, maybe if I just like taste it, certainly I'm not going to drink a lot cause I'm in liver failure. So I'll just get a glass. I'm so, fragile right now that it'll help me pass out i'll be able to fall asleep and uh, i just blacked out i don't remember i woke up like four hours he was going to be home in four hours i cleaned i saw a double bottle of wine a box of wine that i drank and i'd obviously taken myself to the store and i was in liver failure i looked awful like i'm amazed they sold alcohol mm -hmm. um and i he got home from that trip and he went over to his computer and he's on the computer and i'll never forget it i walked in and i had my sunglasses on and because uh, my body was was processing that alcohol immediately, like I immediately started to crash. I was um, blood coming up out of my mouth, blood coming out of my bum, like immediately. And then acute pain in my stomach, like acute, acute pain. So I walked over to him to tell him that we needed to go to the hospital and I needed to get my stomach drained. And then uh, and he and, and looked up at me and I said, you know, hey, we I, we got to go. You know, I, I drank again. And he's like, he couldn't process it. He's just like, you know what? I said, we, I drank again, you know, we got to go to the hospital. And and he just, he just kind of broke down. He like had his last straw. He just, you know, was mm -hmm. inconsolable and just kept repeating that I'd killed myself. He just kept saying, you've killed yourself. You've killed yourself. You're, you're you've killed yourself. And, and, uh, and he's like, fuck you. I'm not taking you to the hospital. <laughs> and I'll never forget. He stopped. He took the long way to the hospital, stopped at a hardware store and got deck stain as if to say like, fuck you, dude. You know, and uh, so I did. I went to the hospital. They gave me a paracentesis and um, sent me home. And uh, that was the last time I had a drink. That was October 12th, 2008. Damn. But that, can you uh, imagine going through that as a dad, man, no, coming I, home? And I mean, I, you know, I put my parents through some stuff. And you talk about those letters you had written for you. Uh, when I was in treatment, uh, I had this nickname called the mailman because I got so many letters from my friends and family. And there was this, there's this little uh, program and treatment where you had to read your weekly letters out to the group. 
and he only had to do it once. And this one week I ended up getting like 15 or 16 letters in the mail from all my friends, family members, something like that. He had to read them all out loud to, to my group. And I don't think I've ever cried that much in my life, but I will tell you those letters like pushed me to sobriety and made me feel better about myself and realized that I wasn't a complete piece of shit. And like I was, <laughs> had built some good relationships, you know? So like, are these people talking about the same guy? It's <laughs> like, no way in hell. That's, I mean, if you thought how I thought about myself internally, like this was definitely not the same guy. Um, did you ever go to treatment or rehab? Mm-mm. No, I never went. I, um, I got, that was the last time I drank. I went to meetings religiously, like mm-hmm. sometimes two and three a day for months. I mean, I completely threw myself into recovery. Like I, 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 uh, you know, uh, the best decision I ever made in my life is to make my local recovery house, my home away from home. Like if I wasn't at home, I was there mm-hmm. and I, I started to learn from the old timers quickly. I got into the steps quickly. My, my, even my, my first sponsor passed away. I was able to, um, you know, process that much more healthfully than I normally would have. <laughs> and, um, got to learn a lot about, you know, I, I got to feel part of something. I got to feel accepted for the first time in my life mm-hmm. and the acceptance that I had in that place. You know, I thought I was definitely tragically unique. I thought I was a special kind of alcoholic and addict that like, the likes of which the world hasn't seen. <laughs> and uh, I quickly learned that I was not special. I quickly learned that those rooms are filled with, with immense amounts of love and empathy and that they will teach you how to be loving and empathetic. And that acceptance of, of people is, is one of the, most wonderful things to be a part of to just share the love and be the love in those rooms it is it's such a powerful community man it's such a powerful community because i couldn't be trusted for a long time i couldn't be trusted you know and i had to to and i also had to learn to lean on something other than the the narrative in my mind like i I can't trust myself really at all even my, my thought process my my internal monologue i really had to default to the care and love of others and Boy, did they swoop me! They didn't at first because they all thought I was going to die. So everyone, everyone likes to say nowadays they're like, some people even apologize like, "Hey, man, I'm sorry. I, uh, you know, <laughs> took me a while to gravitate towards you in the beginning." But like, we we were all just concerned about you, and some of us were, were scared to get close. And because I didn't make any sense in the early days, I, I went in there when you wanted to talk to the president because I needed a liver transplant. So day one, and I got pneumonia on my brain, so I'm making no sense. I'm raising my hand or I'm just talking. I'm just interrupting everyone. None of the protocols that you're supposed to follow. I was just this weird yellow guy. I was completely yellow, like eyeballs, skin, like gray and yellow and just bruised and a huge belly, gigantic. And I had a herniated (laughs) belly button that I used to tape down and it used to stick out of my stomach. I used to tape it down. Yeah. It was awful. And, uh, and, And they really just, man, they just, kept welcoming me back you know i have some of the best friends in my life are from there and they will be till the day i die and i just love that there that there is a spiritual equation that uh has the potential to solve us us drunks when did um when did you first get into rescue rescue animals i got into rescue in 2001 2002 um when my dad moved up here to kern county he relocated his business to the Mojave Air and Spaceport out here in Mojave. There's an animal shelter on the airport. So I started volunteering at the Mojave Animal Shelter in 2000, um, end of 2001 or beginning of 2002. 
Uh, we had a couple of local animal rescue organizations, Canine Canyon Ranch, Leslie Monio, Tatchby Humane Society, Safe Tatchby Orphan Pets, and some really low key, just a, a couple of you know retired gals that were doing their best for small dogs. So I got in with the big boys. That was my passion is I wanted to, to rescue big mutts, big dogs. I grew up with big dogs. I love big dogs. And we only had a purebred rescue. It was two purebred rescues, right? Like a German Shepherd and a Doberman. But, you know, I wanted to advocate for the dogs that I had, which were, were mutts. My, my dog, Marley, was a Rottweiler pit bull. And uh, that's, that's this boy right here. Oh, and nice. uh, Tug was like a lab mix. They both came from that shelter. So both my dogs in rapid succession I'd adopted from that shelter and just started, um, you know, trying to market them. I started making posters, you know, and that was something that uh, like just marketing posters. You know, I'm like, you're a used dog salesman. That is what you are at the end of the day. And <laughs> as a used dog salesman, you got to learn how to market them. So you got to put a voice to them. You got to put a feeling to them. You got to put an energy to them. You got to be able to feel them through the images, through the descriptions. Um, so when I got, when I finally got sober and got back into, started getting back into that work, it was an incredible outlet for me because I had no purpose. And that was what was going to kill me. That was what was going to end me is like, why am I here? I am such a burden. I am, I am a, I am a, I'm a, I'm a deficit. I'm a liability. I'm not, I'm not providing anything. So I, I think I needed to, to find some purpose in my life. And that very quickly became my purpose, but it, it was more than that because it had become um my lifeline you know my dogs have become my lifeline they were teaching me how to get out there in public that my my hall let me bring my dogs to meetings too which is really cool um which was against the rules and um you know that my dogs just showed me the way they, they 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 truly showed me the way to figure out how to live again and to have the the balls to step out there again and so i really wanted to give give back to them and um it kind of all started with just these posters i'd take really good pictures and i'd write ridiculous adoption stories which were like you know like the dogs were incarcerated like they'd been locked up for peeing in public or disorderly <laughs> conduct or you know and like and we had they were whatever just any number of ludicrous stories that were really fun to create and they were fun to and people so i started to this was pre-social media so i would put them up all over town and people would stop and read these bank of all my all the the rescue dogs that i was advertising and uh, they really started to work and they started to put them in the paper and in magazines and in sobriety, I, I started going to schools very early on. So I started, uh, I was the guy, I was the alcoholic crack addict who went to schools, you know, I got to be <laughs> that guy. And that realization didn't happen until I was like mid, mid speech, at the, like at Tehachapi High School and uh, mid speech. I got You're the whole guy. grandstand is filled with kids and I'm sitting, it's just a chair, one chair in the middle of the basketball court and my dog and we're addressing the whole student body. And I and it came to me that holy cow, I'm the guy. Because like, I'm a dare kid. I'm a kid that was in the, the dare. I'm born in nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, I remember so, dare. You know? So I got to be that guy and I start we started hitting the road. We started teaching, you know, basically bringing talking the human animal bond and talking recovery and talking uh wherever we could, you know, going to sober livings, to rehab facilities, to institutions, anywhere we could kind of share our uh, story and try to grow um what wasn't an organization yet, but Marley's Mutts was born of just that, those efforts to try to keep myself sober via dogs. And mm -hmm. at one point people said, Hey man, you ought to do this for like a living. And I was like, what? They're like, you know, rescue dogs, start a dog rescue. And I'm like, you know, a, a dr the, first of all, the government's never going to allow a drunk with a dream to like 
become a nonprofit organization. Like surely that's never going to be possible. And then how will I get the support and how will I fund it? And I had no money. I never had any money, but where there's a will, there's a way. And I had a lot of support of the community and people had seen this yellow guy wandering around town with dogs and posters, you know, and, and quickly there was like this affinity for me here locally. And um, I started to write a lot of articles and, and it just kind of took off and Marley's Mutz was born and, and uh, it was to honor my dog, Marley, who he passed away in 2016. And uh, yeah, the, the organization was created in the beginning of 2009. Uh, we incorporated a nonprofit in 2010, and we've been plugging away ever since. How many dogs have you saved? Oh my God, thousands and thousands. In my home alone, just fostering dogs over the last 20-something years, I've had hundreds and hundreds of dogs. I mean, uh, gosh, I wouldn't even know how to put a number on it. In terms of our organization, many many thousands yeah i mean so it's incredible what you do like the animal human connection is so powerful and can be so useful for people struggling in life and i feel like sometimes people forget about that like forget about using like a dog or or an animal to help them through tough times it's just Mm -hmm. such such a unique experience i think when you find that bond you have to release into it you know, there's a we're, we're regulated by this idea that we can only get affirmation from humans or people that we respect or that are in some sort of uh, position of influence or, or credibility or something. But if you release into what your dog is trying to show you about yourself, you will find love for yourself. If you release into like what your dog is communicating to you, like mm-hmm. the look they give you, you, you will come to the realization like, fucking hey, I guess I'm all right. <laughs> I look I good. Right. You know, he's not, what am I going to call him a liar? I guess I might have that. And and if you, but you have to settle into it. You know, it's not just cuddling with a dog. It's like an energetic exchange. You know, you're there to kind of validate each other energetically and, and spiritually. If you spend time with your dogs in that setting, whether it's cuddling or hiking or even like driving or like I do with my dogs, I get to take them to prison. And so my dogs have this therapeutic capacity in, in prison that is, it's just the most wonderful thing to behold. You want to get an understanding of the, the obvious, just inherent, immediate impact of a dog on, on a human being who is suffering, you know, follow us into any prison. I have a golden retriever from Lebanon named Beta, and I have a two-legged poodle named Cora. And we run, you know, dog programs in state prisons all over the all over the state and juvenile facilities. Yeah, and I get to take that. Yeah, definitely. And I get to take these kiddos in there. And when we are traveling through the institution, um, we are interacting with a whole number of people who are not part of our program. So we get to regularly have these interactions with people who haven't seen a dog in decades, you know, decades. And they get to have and Beta is trained to kind of turn around into you and give herself to you if you get on a knee. And then Cora obviously has doesn't have two front legs, so she's, you know, you have to hold her. And to watch these guys, to watch them return to this childlike existence mm-hmm. and this childlike stoke that they've probably not been able to access in a very long time, and that you know, and that they might also be chasing using drugs is really special to see. I mean, there there is. We had this interaction the other day where we had just come in. There's a bunch of guys in line for um, commissary, and all. Uh, rival you know gangs slash races and and they were all gathered around we were bringing in dogs that we were going to leave there so we had several dogs 
And these guys were on there, all of them, you know, seven or eight of them petting these dogs with the biggest grins on their face, baby talking. And there was a couple moments where you could tell, like, <laughs> the guys looked at who they were. And it was like, oh, well, whatever. And and that's one of the magical things about about training dogs in prison. But the, the special, the the magic that's in those little moments that those get the, the positive streak that the dogs leave, they leave this energy, this, mm-hmm. this uber positive loving energy. And in a prison, there's none of that. So when they leave that streak, people can pick up that energy and they can take it with them into the institution and they can try to spread that themselves and, and really try to make a dark place more positive. So these dogs come in and they basically just shoot off positive energy in various directions. And, and you see them change states of mind you know where people you know are about as hard as you can look mm-hmm. and then shift right into this remembering what it's like to be a kid rolling around on the ground with a golden retriever who loves them you know and uh it's very special to get to offer that it's it's very very special it's hard not to cry sometimes like it's, sure, it's emotional i mean we had this instant this incident this is a cool story man this is this is this is pretty cool so i got i have a dog with me Beta. I'm walking onto. It's freezing cold at Tehachapi State Prison. We're walking onto to our pod, which is level three C C yard. So I'm walking through the institution. To get there. I come onto the yard, and everyone's on the yard. It's chaos. It's um, it had been snowing, so guys probably hadn't been out that often. And it's very very cold. Everyone's got their jackets on. There's 500 guys on the yard, or 300 guys on the yard. And I'm approaching, and I see one of our students with one of our dogs trying to introduce to another inmate who's basically backpedaling and the dog's barking, 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 barking. It's a bad situation where he's about to get bit. And I'm going, oh shoot, I got to intervene in this. So I come onto the yard and um, I hand Beta off to Alvarez, who's one of our students. And I walk over and I try to intervene and it starts to hail, just bad hail. So everyone scatters off the yard, but me, Alvarez, and this other gentleman who's trying to facilitate this introduction. By now, the dogs, I, I walk up, and this is a dog I know, and he's lunging at me, really having a hard time. I mean, barking, 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 you know, basically resource guarding, you know. And um, so I, we facilitated a, a leash handoff. I just said, walk with me, guys. And now everyone's watching this. Everyone's standing in front of their pods because they can't go inside yet. They haven't popped the doors, so everyone's watching. And um, we start walking around, and I'm, I'm able to get this gentleman who's trying to meet the dog up to, to to our dog i hand off the leash and he starts walking and then at the end of our walk when we get to the other side of the track he kind of gets down and the dog jumps all over him and they have this beautiful moment he, his name is david he hasn't seen a dog in 42 years this guy hadn't seen a dog in 42 years and as soon as that happened everyone started clapping you know everyone that was saying that watches goes, you know it was it was really cool um what was uh how did you get into working with incarcerated people uh, well, I mean, I think I have a natural affinity for um, men who are suffering and struggling. And, and I think men who have messed up, I, I think I'm just naturally drawn to people who are fallible and who have a lot of potential and, and maybe are struggling to leverage it, like like myself, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a friend who went through incarceration and who we linked up with a dog um, that I was fostering a pit bull. And it, and it changed his whole life, changed his entire trajectory, changed everything about him. He became a dog rescuer dog. Uh, he has his own dog rescue organization called Strength of Shadow. And, um, you know, you could just see what it did for him in terms of bringing him back into society, giving him the tools similar to me, where it just gave him the confidence to get out there and interact with people. 
Uh, and it was much easier to hermit, much easier to just cover up and just kind of isolate, um, especially after a, a traumatic experience like being incarcerated from 17 to 31. Um, and, and it was at that moment that we tried to get into the system and we tried to present different ideas. I had no idea what to do, though. You know, so we got some ideas entertained by the jail system in Kern County. That didn't work. We reached out to a few facilities. That didn't work. I reached out to the Obama administration. That didn't work. And uh, eventually, Warden David Long at California City Correctional Facility said, we'd be happy to institute a pilot program here. And we were in. So we were in at a California State Prison Facility, January 2016. Started running our first program. Um, Leah Marquez, Lisa Porter, Kim Erickson, Sam Johnson, some of the best female dog trainers, well, best dog trainers, period, on the planet that you will ever see, um, started running that program. And we were... Not only were we able to rehabilitate um, some really challenging dogs in that program, but a tremendous amount of those students have been released from prison and are professional dog trainers. We now have 19 formerly incarcerated dog trainers out here on the streets, almost all of whom did very long sentences, almost all of whom were, you know, essentially black and brown gang members and uh, and have really found a, a niche and I found a, a place, a home in the pet industry. Um, there's a natural acceptance of their sort of second chance trajectory. Um, there's a real um, inquisitiveness about the incarcerated that maybe maybe was fear before. Mm -hmm. So I'm noticing, especially with a lot of the work we do, I, I try to share share my students. I try to have people feel them. The best way for us to to start to assimilate the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated into our into our our society is to assimilate them into our hearts. We have to have empathy and we have to have an understanding of of what their existence is. And we have to ask ourselves: Do we just want to throw them away forever? Is that the decision we're going to make? throw them away forever because they're not being released to Siberia. They're coming home yep. and they're coming home to your neighborhoods to, to, and, and they're also from a, you know, from a moral ethical standpoint, you know, the, the Christ like the, the, the right thing to do here is to get, not only give someone a, a second chance, but to, to legitimately believe in them mm -hmm. and to provide them some, some tools to believe in themselves. And um, I'm just, I'm so pumped up on positive change. You know, there's a lot of things I wish I could change and I wish I could adjust um, in a more speedy manner and, and things that T's I wish I could cross and I's I wish I could dot better and polish up. And, you know, in a side conversation, I'm sure I could, you know, moan and gripe about it. But on, on, at its foundation, I'm so proud of positive change and I'm so proud of the trainers we've been able to attract mm -hmm. over the years and the success that we've been able to, to affect on the, not only the incarcerated human population, but the incarcerated dog population. And we've rehabilitated hundreds and hundreds of large juvenile dogs in there. These are tough dogs. You know, the dogs we rehabilitate in prison are the ones who are directly off the euthanasia list. These are large young dogs with no skills. So, you know, eight months to three-year-old pity shepherds and huskies who don't understand structure, don't understand a leash, don't understand a crate. So, if they have any hope of being adopted, they have to learn structure, discipline. They need exercise, affection, all of these different things, which are exactly what we need as people in recovery. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exercise, discipline, affection, rules, boundaries, Definitely. all of those things that we work on with dogs in the process of dog training are in dog psychology are exactly what we work on in recovery. So the reason it's so successful is because there's that foundation of mutual rehabilitation, which is I have to provide structure discipline affection uh, exercise all of these things variables to this dog and by by virtue of doing that I, i'm providing those to myself mm -hmm. and, and, and that's where the growth happens and that's why it happened in me so 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 effectively
Yeah, so true. And we didn't even say that, but that is the initiative, right? From uh, Marley's Mutts is it's a positive change program, which is the one that's mm -hmm. in prisons. Yeah, positive change is a comprehensive inmate canine training program that we operate currently in. We have three programs in the state prison system, and then we have a women's federal program, and then we have a boys and a girls juvenile program. The juveniles are run through probation, LA County and Kern County. Then we go through the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons for our federal program, and then we're at the state system, the, the state level with our uh, most of our men's programs. And they are operating continuously all the time. Um, and, you know, we have dogs, we have three dogs living at, in Malibu at the boys' prison. We uh, just brought in four dogs to, or five dogs to Tehachapi State Prison today. Um, so that round is in week three. Um, we just brought in dogs to M Yard at North Kern State Prison. So these prisons are, are rescue factories. What we're, what we're trying to do here is provide hope and opportunity to the most um, vulnerable dogs, dogs that are, are on the euthanasia list, and we're providing them the tools they need to be successfully adopted. Mm -hmm. They're they're following the Canine Good Citizen certification. We're giving them a background in dog psychology. And um, and with that, we're able to create a lot of wonderful, successful adoptions. And I think um, the long-term goal of this is to address the animal sheltering and rescue catastrophe, which is occurring currently, and which was only exacerbated during COVID, and also to address the, the prison industrial complex and the lack of, of hope and opportunity we have for the incarcerated, because these are really fundamental problems. These are black eyes on the face of, on, these are black eyes on the face of, of, of all of American culture. The mm -hmm. fact that we euthanize, that we kill, that we pay to shelter and kill over a million animals a year is, is shocking. And the fact that we have two and a half million incarcerated Americans within the United States, 25% of the entire world's incarcerated are incarcerated within the United States. 33% of all the incarcerated women in the world are incarcerated in the United States. We spend $90 billion a year on locking up fellow Americans. And then when we let them out of prison, 72% of the time they come back after committing a crime and creating a victim. And there's almost no accountability to that process. The process of rehabilitating people while they are incarcerated, while they're under your detention, is, um, is uh, has almost no teeth. It's starting to get better. It really is. The culture is definitely changing. But there's no real pressure on successful outcomes. You know, 72%, 72% of the people that go through your institution commit crimes and end up back in prison. That is an unacceptable number. And, and we ought to be not only ashamed of it, we ought to, we ought to speak up because that's a lot of money. You know, we're spending between $35,000 and $100,000 a year per inmate to incarcerate them in the yes, state of California. Also, that's a mind-boggling amount of money, you know, and if we're going to be spending that much money, the American public ought to demand results, mm -hmm. ought to demand a true and authentic path to self-support. Um, yeah. And the way the system is set up now is very much so not that. Yeah, but what crazy. we're seeing throughout our, through our program what I'm most excited about is this cultural shift to where because of a lot of the stuff we're posting on social media, people are starting to feel our students and see them and understand the potential within. And they're starting to take part in the second chance and they're starting to revel in these success stories and they're starting to see these people for who they are. And they're starting to like there's something so special about progressing past our prejudices. And you really see my dad's one of them. You know, you watch him progress past his prejudices in, in terms of the program. And it becomes really wonderful to put down that 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 um, judgmental lens and to, to view them as yeah. these as children of God who are who are trudging their path 
to um, their own, you know, self-actualization. And, and the most of our students, most of our guys who are out, they really are, man, they're walking the walk. They're, they're going to meetings, they're participating in their, you know, fellow formerly incarcerated brothers and sisters lives. We have a, a real supportive network. We love each other. We really do. There's more love within the text threads and the relationships that we have from our guys than I experience in almost all of my other friendships and you know out here yeah um so i'm i'm the sorry go ahead bud no i was saying i just believe it like when you go through that something like that that connection and bond like you really get real friendships and and real relationships to uh your point i mean i think 95 percent of uh incarcerated people are going to get out like you said close to 75 percent will be reincarcerated so if you think about it you need to think like these are going to be your neighbors these are going to be the people next to you in the grocery store like how do you want them to come home and uh it is wild that we, in a lot of cases, don't think about that and don't give them the proper tools or education or programs while incarcerated to, to get back into society and, and bring positive positivity back into back into society. And is it is it ethical or practical or logical to incubate the incarcerated in an environment that is so fundamentally negative that you? can't help but end up more negative after experiencing it. It is it is a dark, heavy, energetic, awful place. And we have to really just ask ourselves societally, do we want to rehabilitate those who are incarcerated for crime? Do we want to really, are we going to take it seriously? And if mm-hmm. we want to take it seriously, we have to have a real, we have to take a real effort at instituting the right programs to give people a chance to give people access to our economy. We have to, to really take it seriously because the potential within this is one of the things we don't talk about a lot is the potential within the prison system. These are brilliant individuals. You know, 85% of them are locked up for, for alcohol or drugs or, or intoxicated when, when committing these crimes. And, um, you know, they're, they're very smart individuals. Us, Mm -hmm. us, uh, alcohol and drug afflicted folk tend to be creative and, and smart and relatively deep and emotional. And these guys have a tremendous amount of potential. Plus, by virtue of just being down, being being enveloped in this kind of pod of suffering for so long, if you can get through that suffering, man, if you can persevere through that, if you can get through those dark days where, where violence is all around you, where threats are all around you, where if you can persevere through that and just say, I'm going to make it, I'm going to, and you can, and, and also hold on to your humanity and even expand your humanity, I, I want I want to mess with you, man. Yeah, I want you. I want you in my in my orbit because you can teach me something about how how I can get through mm-hmm. all the all the things I'm hung up on, you know. Right. And that's one of the things I've learned from my friends, my students, more than anything, is how to cope with certain suffering inevitabilities mm-hmm. um, that I've had a hard time processing. Yeah, man. They're some of the smartest people I've ever talked with. How? Uh... How do how do we get? I mean, your program in like every prison, like this. <laughs> I feel like this needs to be done. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. It's it's. I uh, I often view myself as a failure for like not having been able to scale our program to the degree that it should be. And you know what, man? One of the things that's happened recently that's really helped out is the federal prison system. Uh, Donald Trump and and uh, Senator Scott passed the First Step Act in end of two thousand eighteen took effect in 2019 and it really incentivized the federal prison system, which is about 2% of the fe- of the total prison population to, to really emphasize programming and not only to emphasize programming, it scaled back mandatory minimums, scaled back, um, having to serve, you know, 
it, it scaled back a lot of things that not only didn't make sense, but were scientifically proven not to work. Mm-hmm. And it's really put it and it's put pressure on the federal prison system to get its act together and focus on a full spectrum of education and, and vocational training. And so, but our society hasn't caught up. There aren't enough nonprofits that are willing to go into the prison system and provide this type of education. So that's one thing we need to step up and do more of. But at a state level, we have to start instituting things like the First Step Act, and then we'll, we'll start to really see some change. Um, we did get some funding this year for a few of our programs, which was great. We have great support of our, of our community. But in order to scale something that, that is expensive to run, I mean, it's expensive to run, but when it comes to the live outcomes, both for the, the pets and the people, mm-hmm. it's it, the ROI is, is is orders of magnitude beneficial, you know? So, um, and, and really, how do you put a price on like human success? Yeah. And and the, the third and fourth order consequences of positive outcomes, right? You're going to affect your whole family. You have a positive outcome when you cycle back to society after being down for a long time. Your kids are much less likely mm-hmm. to, to to continue that same cycle and that's really what's been a big a big problem is the the downstream consequences of the the 90s crime bills that were instituted by mm-hmm. by by at the time joe biden and, and and many others it created this prison industrial complex that has just kept people in prison for a very long time mm-hmm. and 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 really incarcerated whole neighborhoods of, of people at a rate that's just really alarming and so we're finally, as a society, starting to take a look at a lot of these variables, and we're starting to scale some of them back. We're starting to address them more logically, more empathetically. And, and our guys would be the first ones to say, hey, we're not looking for a pass. I'm not looking for you to co-sign what I did or to somehow make it okay. Uh, we we want to take accountability for everything. And these guys do. When they parole and they write their letters to the parole board, these are these are, these are are manifestos, man. These are, are Bibles of pages where they're, they're just – uprooting their entire uh, emotional everything they really do get it out they process their and a lot of them who are programming are incentivized to process through through writing and journaling and and answering a lot of prompts and and uh you know with with a little bit of cultivation and with a little bit of of belief and love you know i'm not saying we have to like bend over backwards to again co-sign any of the behavior but if we just take a Christ-like stance at rehabilitation and really look at these guys at their potential and to just love them a little bit and believe in them. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it matters so much, man. And yeah. it can really affect things at a, at a massive level. Engineered sleep makes the best mattresses out there. Sleep is the number one thing you can focus on right now to better your performance on a daily basis. And you might as well be sleeping on an engineered sleep mattress. Like I said, their products are the best and their customer service is second to none. Their website is engineeredsleep.com. If you use promo code LIVE15, you'll get 15% off your order. So if you or someone you know is looking for a new mattress, reach out to the team at Engineered Sleep and they'll hook you up. Again, their website is engineeredsleep.com. Use promo code LIVE15 to get 15% off your order. You uh, you mentioned the potential of the people in the prison system. is It's insane. There's so much potential. It is absurd. I think I've heard it described as like the richest land or the richest like set of people is the people that are in the prison system that aren't being, you know, they, they're not living up. They're not being given the opportunity to live up, live up to their potential. Yeah. You, um, you're a dad now, right? Oh man. Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. best, the best thing uh, that's ever happened to me, uh, bar none. I mean, um, I am a dad to two little beautiful girls. They're five and two. And, uh, it's the greatest thing ever, man. 
It is the greatest thing ever. From a sobriety standpoint, too, you'd think, oh, man, you have a couple. And I'm a single dad. You know, I'm, I'm been going through a divorce for the last, uh, you know, year and a half or so, um, which is a huge adjustment. You know, when you think, oh, my God, you know, or I would have thought, oh, my God, how am I going to cope with the with a divorce, being a single dad, having two little, how am I going to cope with that? You know? And it's been, it hasn't been hard. It really hasn't. I mean, it's tough. There are tough moments, but um, I can, I get to root into my kids. There, there's nothing better for my sobriety than rooting into my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they show you a childlike that you get to live uh, just a fundamentally more childlike existence. They, they kind of lead the way. And if, again, if you release yourself into that, if you kind of release all the constraints and just let yourself be, buffoonical and ridiculous with your kids it's the greatest thing in the world you know it really takes you back to play and like we talked about earlier it takes you back to that childlike state and mm-hmm. um you know i still i still have boundaries and and you know i can i could be a tough dad from time to time but um i absolutely love every part of it man i um i really do it won't be too long before you're gonna have to be beating up the little boys in the neighborhood oh man right yeah i'm hoping i can uh Maybe if I have to get a few more tattoos, I'm hoping to just look tough enough and have tough enough friends that like just nobody nobody thinks about it. I'm counting Brian James. If you're out there, I'm, I'm counting on you, buddy. What um what is next for Marley's Mutts and Positive Change Program? You know what? Like I'm in South Carolina. It's like how can I get? I mean, I've worked with some incarcerated people and some incarcerated programs, but we haven't I haven't done anything with animals, and it's incredible. Yeah. And I feel like there really is like such an opportunity there. Cause you say that connection, man, it's insane. Well, we're growing. We are growing. We um, essentially have Arizona on deck. That's our next move. My, my buddy, John Gata, who's a wonderful dog trainer, set up something pretty cool for us out there, helped us connect some dots. So we have the support of the state um, Senate and legislature and the, the prison system out there at the state level, they've been incredible. I mean, really, I can't say enough for the cultural shift that's happened within the institution, at the institutional administrative level. There are educators that are being promoted to associate warden. There are educators being promoted to CRM, you know, community resource manager and other backgrounds. So there's much more of this focus on rehabilitation and education than, you know, your typical punitive means where, mm-hmm. you know, typically if you're, if you're promoting through, through the ranks where you're, you know, it's a guy who started out as a sergeant who worked his way up and, you know, you, you, you just tend to have that more rigid, typical prison uh, approach, but the new wave of, of prison administration is much more um, in line with education. There seems to be some, like I said, federal pressure via the first step act, um, certainly here in California. There's a lot of there's a lot of incredible prison advocates in California. There's a couple of people who I quite literally, you know, if they didn't exist, I wouldn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. um, Scott Budnick and Jason Flom. Um, Jason's Jason, a yeah. he's involved in the Innocence Project. He's involved in relatively convicted, a lot of different things. Um, Lava for good, and, and Scott Budnick's the co-founder of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. And what those guys what those guys do, and what they've helped do at the state level, specifically Scott in California and, and his entire organization, is, is is really bring it to the forefront. Really, like make the conversation happen, and also kind of make it cool. You know, they've created. Um, they're, they're, we'll, we'll just say the the momentum is headed in the right direction mm-hmm. in terms of um, the state and federal institutions um, adapting their procedures for how they incarcerate people. Yeah, man. All right, last question. I, uh, I, first off, man, you're incredible. Like the work you're doing is, is incredible. Um, so you said something earlier, like you look at yourself as a failure cause you haven't grown so much, but dude, 
you are like making such positive change. It's incredible. With um, unintended. <laughs> if somebody's listening, they are struggling. Like, what is your message to them? If they're down in the dumps, maybe they were where you were when you were twenty eight, or I mean, they could just be struggling through a divorce. Yeah, I mean, to quote Theo Vaughn, man, it's going to be okay. You know, it's just going to be okay. It is. It's going to be okay. Might not feel like it now, but it's going to be okay. Um, I, you know, I can't really speak for for you know, telling people what, what they should do. Um, but the best thing for me is to get outside of my own brain. You know, alcoholism is something that, that will never leave me. And the more I sit and marinate on my own thoughts, locked within my own, my own mental corridor, um, it's just dangerous. It's a, it's a dangerous neighborhood. And if I'm not, mm -hmm. if I'm not strapped rolling around that neighborhood with some serious tools, it's just, it's dangerous to be in there for too long. Um, so I would, um, you know, the fruit of life is in connection and, and the way we get through in the way we get into and through recovery is through connection. It's those bonds. And um, for me, when I get into that really dark, I'm talking suicidal ideation place, almost instantaneously, when I connect with someone that I love and who cares about me, um, that that is released, you know, almost instantaneously. And um, yeah, that's Thank essentially what I'd say. Brother, man, I I uh, I did have a question about: Do you work out? Do you do like a, some physical? Like, is that kind of part of your release? I know you mentioned. Yeah, I do, man. I, I was gonna I was gonna par uh, parlay right into that because uh, that, that's the other thing I do is I, I have to be active. Mm -hmm. I am in. Uh, I've always been active my whole life. I grew up skateboarding, surfing, snowboarding. I still do all those things. Uh, although I can't really skate very well anymore. Let's not let's not get carried away. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I I'm in the gym. You know uh three to five days a week and i have to be active i have to be walking dogs i have to be i'm fidgety i can't sit still you know what i mean so where i need to be if i'm on my bed or on my couch or you know chances are i'm marinating on something negative if i'm out there running we do that we do marathons too that's another big thing we do so as an organization we've run the chicago marathon like eight or nine years cool. and we're doing the los angeles marathon this year so um yeah, there's a few people out there I want to get to run for. So, Zach, if you're watching, you better hop up on our team. Los Angeles <laughs> Marathon, March 2024. Uh, we'll be doing that as a crew, and I think we're going to try to get a couple dozen people to run with us. So that's one of them. Very cool, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming on. It's been honestly like I, I really mean it. Like The work you're doing is incredible, and it really is making change. And um, it's been an honor having you and a privilege hearing your story. Thank you for being vulnerable and open. I know as men, guys, sometimes people struggle with that. So um, it's been a true pleasure having you on. Thanks, man. You're a hell of an interviewer, man. The energy was just perfectly wonderful. Like I, I felt it the whole time, man. That's not easy to do. So thanks for bringing it. You know? Thank you. Thank you for listening. Give our partners some love by visiting their links in the show notes. Spinks Convenience Stores, you can find the location nearest you. Rebel Rabbit Seltzers, they're on a mission to socialize healthier and smarter, so join the mission. And Engineered Sleep, making the best mattresses in the game. You might as well be sleeping on an Engineered Sleep mattress. For me, if you could give our show a five-star rating on your listening platform, that'd be greatly appreciated. And thank you so much for listening.